from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. My name is Tony Sundermeyer, the senior pastor, and I want to thank you for watching today's broadcast. Now, I invite you to join in the worship of God. Chapter 60, 1-6 Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear over you. Nations shall come, in, come to your light, and kings brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look around. They all gather together, they come to you. Your sons shall come from far away, and your daughters shall be carried on their nurses' arms. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and rejoice, because the abundance of the sea shall be brought on to you. To you. The wealth of nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of mint. Dana and Afina. All these from Sibia come. They bring gold and frankincense. They shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. Our second reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew in the second chapter, and it's a rather long text, and it really tells the end of the, of the Christmas story, the end of the story of the nativity of Jesus. And we're going to read uh, just verses 1 through 16. So hear now God's word for us this morning. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judah. For so it has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they, heard, when they had heard the king, they set out, and there, ahead of them, went the star that had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Now, after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. 
Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem, who were two years or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in prayer. Everlasting God, break open your word for us this morning, that in encountering your truth, our hearts might be transformed as we come to hear and believe your gracious promises for your people and all of creation. Amen. Today's gospel text describes one of the most memorable moments in the Christmas story, the visit of the three wise men. They have come from the east. They've come from as far away as ancient Persia or modern-day India, and they've brought with them gold and frankincense and myrrh as gifts for the newborn Jesus. This well-known scene, I think, is essential to every nativity set out there. And the one that my family owns is no exception. Perhaps like many of you, we display our nativity set on the mantle above our fireplace. And what you need to know is that our mantle is quite small, and somehow we seem to have a deluxe edition nativity set. Because there's Mary and Joseph and Jesus, and the shepherd, and the wise men. But then there are at least a dozen other figures who, even after a seminary degree and years in grad school, I still can't tell you who most of them are. Now, each year, we hang our Christmas stockings beneath the mantle that has a nativity set on it. And a few years back, we had the nativity set up early for some reason, so I was still putting up the stockings when the nativity set was already there, and so I was hammering in the nails for the stockings to hang on, and the vibrations of the hammer caused a shockwave to run throughout our overcrowded mantle, and one of the poor wise men did not survive the unintended earthquake that I was causing. He tumbled from the mantle, and despite my best efforts to grab him before he hit the ground, he landed on the slate floor beneath. Instant decapitation. Some Gorilla Glue was able to save him, but he's never been the same since. I've always thought there's a message in this story somewhere about how our preoccupation with the secular side of Christmas symbolized by the stockings can take over or even tumble our view uh, or focus on the nativity of Jesus, but that's another sermon for another day. I want to talk about the wise men who visit on that day. This, this, this moment in the nativity scene is commemorated in the church on January 6th, this very Sunday, the first Sunday after the new year. And of course, as you know already from Tony, it's called Epiphany. Epiphany in Greek is, just simply means appearance or manifestation. It's not a theological term. In ancient Greek literature, it could be used to describe the appearance of just about anything, the appearance of a god or the appearance of enemies on a battlefield. But here in our biblical context, epiphany means the manifestation of this baby Jesus to these wise men. Now, these wise men, and please, whatever you do, don't call them wise guys. These wise men only appear in the Gospel of Matthew. 
And even there, very little is said about them. In fact, it's one of those cases where our Christian imaginations fill in a lot of details about who they are and what they're like that the text never mentions. For instance, a little pop quiz. How many wise men are there? Everyone? Three, of course. Well, if you've noticed in our reading this morning, Matthew never says that there are three wise men. He doesn't give any number to it. We assume that there are three simply because they offer three gifts, and we assume one gift per person. But that's not always been how the church has seen it. And even today in the Syrian church, it's assumed that there are 12 wise men, one for each of the 12 days of Christmas. Another example, in much Christian art today, we see the wise men displayed and depicted as kings. They have crowns, they have royal robes. Uh, Even we have that famous hymn, We Three Kings. And so we think of the wise men as kings, but again, it's another detail that Matthew doesn't give us. In fact, this idea that the wise men are kings doesn't come up till about 500 years into church history, and it's a result of reading this story that we heard this morning in light of Isaiah 60 or Isaiah 72, both of which talk about kings coming to pay homage to God with their gifts. So if not kings, who are these wise men? Well, in the New Testament Greek, they're called magi, and that's the word that we get our word magic from. So the wise men are magicians, but they're not magicians of the Harry Potter sort. In the ancient world, magi were philosophers or uh, natural scientists. Among other things, they would have been quite used to studying the night sky and making observations about the stars above. So on some night, some 2,000 years ago, as the wise men gazed up into the darkness, they noticed a star that was not on any of their charts. And they didn't know exactly what it was or why it was there, but they knew it meant something special. They knew it was an epiphany from the gods, and somehow they knew that that star was worth following. And so they set out on a long journey from the east. They first come to Jerusalem, naturally thinking that the star would stop over that holy city, but it wasn't there. It had stopped over a small village just outside of Jerusalem called Bethlehem. There, the wise men enter a house, and when they see the baby Jesus, they are overwhelmed with joy, is how the text describes it. Overwhelmed with joy. If you've ever spent Christmas morning with kids, overwhelmed with joy seems like a really good description of what that look looks like on a child's face as they stumble out of bed, bleary-eyed, probably still in their pajamas, and for the first time see the gifts under the tree. In our case, this experience of overwhelming joy comes because we are about to receive gifts. But here in this text, it's the experience of joy that leads the Magi to give gifts to the Christ child. Overwhelmed with joy, they open their treasure chests and offer gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, why these three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Well, the church has puzzled over this for for many, many, many years. Martin Luther, the great reformer, saw them as symbols of faith, hope, and love. Others in the church have saw them as symbols of virtues like mercy and prayer and purity. Others still have seen them as symbolizing the earthly, uh, earthly power and wealth and success that we lay down at the foot of the newborn king. In either case, the things brought there to that baby Jesus would have been valuable 
and rare, and thus represent in some way something costly, something precious that these three wise men bring with them on their long journey. Just before Christmas, a congregant and a friend passed along a cartoon to me, I think from the New Yorker, and in it you see three figures huddled around a baby Jesus, presumably in a stable. But the three figures aren't men, and they're not bringing gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Instead, in the illustration, you see three women, and one of them has a bunch of diapers, another one has a casserole, and the other one has formula. And beneath, uh, the caption reads, after the three wise men left, three wiser women arrived. <laughs> now, whatever the utility of the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, the wise men had followed a star for hundreds of miles through rough terrain and unknown territory to arrive there in that house with the Christ child. The wise men are not only the first non-family members to behold this newborn Jesus, but they also are the first non-Jews to behold Jesus. The three wise men in church history are thought to symbolize Europe and Africa and Asia. And thus the epiphany in Matthew's gospel is not just about the appearance of Jesus, but it's about the appearance of Jesus to all people including the Gentile world. And this is a really important theme in the Gospel of Matthew. In many ways, this theme of God's revelation to the Gentiles anticipates how Matthew's Gospel ends. For in the very last chapter of Matthew, in the very last word, uh, verse, Jesus' last words to the disciples call to them to go out into the world to make disciples of all nations. In a way, Matthew's Gospel ends with a global scene of what's already happening in miniature here with that, in that little house in Bethlehem. For here in that house we have Jew and Gentile, family and stranger, three wise men from the east, and a couple from Nazareth around the newborn Jesus in worship. But in this story, the wise men are not the only one who notice a star. King Herod, a ruler commissioned by Caesar Augustus to oversee Judea, also took notice of something strange in the night sky. He, like the wise men, knew the star signaled something important. For you see, in the ancient world, stars were said to appear at the birth of important figures. Even Roman emperors would claim that stars rose in the year that they were born. So for Herod to notice this star in the sky was a conflict of interest. If this star signaled the birth of a new king, what would, it, would it mean the end of Herod's reign? Would this new king grow up to curry the favor of a people and lead a rebellion against the powers that be? I suspect that these are the sorts of questions that rumbled through Herod's mind when he saw that star in the night sky. And it terrified him. And it's what led him to want to find the star, not to pay it homage, but to snuff it out. This brings us then to a less well-known part of the story, a less pleasant part of the story. Fueled by a mixture of fear and jealousy, Herod ordered that every child under the age of two should be killed. It was a violent overreaction to the star that assured that the child born, the child the star, uh, for whom the star shone, would never come to challenge his authority. With this threat looming, the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and warns him about Herod's deadly decree 
the Holy Family sets off to Egypt to escape. Now, I have to admit, when I had imagined this scene for many, many years, what I had in my mind was the Holy Family heading off on their own, on a solitary journey south, to wait until things settled down. But as I've come back to this text recently, I think I've come to realize that the situation really would have been quite different than that. While Joseph learns of Herod's plot to kill these young ones through a, a dream, others would have caught wind of Herod's plan other ways. The word would have spread like wildfire throughout Jerusalem and Judea. No doubt within weeks, if not days, the news of Herod's deadly decree would have reached the homes of every family in the region that had an infant or a toddler under roof. And I think you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have needed God to appear, you, appear to you in a dream to know that it was time to get out of town. So what I think we should imagine then is not just the Holy Family sneaking off on their own, but rather a mass movement of families with little kids. I think we should imagine something like a, a large caravan of threatened families seeking refuge in another country, heading south in hopes of finding open borders and hospitable neighbors. In a desperate act of survival, these families would have left behind everything they had, everything they knew, and a land they loved in order to preserve the lives of their precious little ones. To put it as simply as I can, Herod's response to the star triggered a refugee crisis. Like any refugee crisis, leaving is a huge, huge risk. But for those families, including Mary and Joseph, the danger of staying put far outweighed the danger of traveling that uncertain road to a place of refuge. So what do we make of this story of epiphany some 2,000 years later? For me, there's one question that I can't uh, escape, and it's this. What sort of signs or what sort of signals would cause us to set out on a journey to the Christ child like the wise men did of old? For the holy couple, that journey began with a push of a crisis. Herod's deadly decree launched them on a journey of hundreds of miles in search of safety in a foreign land. But for the wise men, the, this journey of faith begins not with a push of a crisis, but rather with the pull of a star. What is remarkable about this story is not just that the star pulls them to faith. What's remarkable is how little information they had to go on when they began their journey. Think about it for a moment. All they had was an observation about an irregularity in the night sky, a tiny speck of light in the darkness. They know it's off somewhere to the west, but they don't have precise coordinates of where this star is. They know it signals the birth of an important child, but they don't know who that child is, know how they'll know it when they find him or her. For the wise men, the star was like a beacon, a light that's served as a signal and indicated a general direction, but offered really little else other than that. And yet, they went. When it comes to practicing faith, many Christians today, myself included, demand something much more precise, something much more certain, something much less ambiguous than a star. In fact, I think most of us don't want stars at all. We want something like a GPS device. 
things that can tell us exactly where to go, exactly how to get there, exactly what to do when we arrive, exactly when to go, and exactly how we'll find God. We want sort of some sort of device that tells us that we are on the right track and that everything happens for a reason. But the star that those magi saw long ago was very different. It was something to pay attention to, for sure, but it was also something mysterious. It was a speck of light rising in the west, and that speck of light somehow sparked their curiosity. It beckoned them on a journey, and it somehow opened them to faith. Maybe this is what we have to learn from those wise men on this Epiphany Sunday, some 2,000 years later. We are called to search the scriptures much like they searched the night sky, with the hope of not finding all of the answers, but being drawn into faith by the questions it raises. What is justice? How do we love our neighbors? How do we raise our kids in faith? How do we find time for rest and worship in the midst of our busy lives? How do we find purpose in retirement? How do we find hope in the midst of unthinkable grief? There's no GPS, friends, that will give us precise answers to those questions. We won't see in the night sky a neon billboard that says, here's Jesus, he's the Messiah. Become a Presbyterian. Vote for this candidate. Send your kid to that school. That's not what faith is about now, and it wasn't what faith was about then. We are beckoned, I think, to bring God our questions, not to wait for answers before we start the journey. I think that's what happened for the Magi of long ago. After visiting the, chi- the Christ child with all of their questions in tow, the text tells us that they returned to their own country, but it adds a really interesting little detail. It says that re- they returned to their home country by another road. And I think that's another way of saying that visiting the Christ child launched them off on a different path in life. It launched them off on a path of faith. I'm not sure that they came away with all of their questions resolved, but I think they now knew where to look for answers. May it be so with us today on this Epiphany Sunday. May we be a people open to being drawn into faith by our questions and willing to be transformed by God's ongoing epiphany in our lives and in this world. Amen. Friends, all of our words about God are provisional and in the grandest of schemes are inadequate. And yet over the generations, the church has sought fit to find words to give expression to that which it is we believe. One of the oldest confessions that we carry as a community of faith is the Apostles' Creed. Written in about 150 A.D., it has helped us follow that star, has helped us along that road. I invite you now, if you're able, to stand. And if you're willing, I'd invite, to, invite you to say what it is you believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, 
suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Before I invite our ushers forward to collect our morning offering, let me say thank you to the members and friends of this congregation who have given so much in 2018. Uh, our director of accounting, Peggy McCurdy, is still counting uh, the generosity that has come in uh, in December and in the latter portions of that month. Uh, we are uh, so much of the church we are by God's grace through the generosity of this congregation. And whether it comes in a form where you put some money or a check in an offering plate or whether you give through our mobile app or whether you give through your bank or on a credit card. Uh, what a privilege it is for all of us to be able to share what God has put us in charge of for the good of God's kingdom. I'd like to invite the ushers forward now to receive our morning tithes and offerings. <laughs> 